0: Good morning. Let's go ahead and find our place. And let's stand together as we worship the Lord through songs, starting with a great song, Jesus Saved. Let's sing this out together.
1: The regime will sing forever. Jesus
0: saves. Amen. Great singing this morning. You can be seen.
2: Good morning and welcome to First Baptist Church of Wixom. Thanks again for joining us for worship today. Here are a few upcoming events to help you stay connected.
0: The E3 Starting Points class starts next Sunday morning at 945 on January 28th in Room 402. The Starting Points class is designed to engage attenders in church life by answering five key questions about FBC. If you have never attended the Starting Points class, please join us next Sunday morning at 945 in Room 402. Our second men's worship breakfast is planned for Tuesday, January 30th from 6 to 7.30 a.m. Don't miss this great time of fellowship as we enjoy an awesome breakfast together, musical worship, and prayer. We'll enjoy a special guest speaker who will be bringing an engaging lesson on what it means to be a husband, father, and disciple maker. Don't miss this powerful morning designed just for men.
2: The Preschool and WCS Open House is this Thursday, January 25th from 6 to 7 p.m. Invite your friends and family to come tour the school and meet all our wonderful teachers. Current student re-enrollment starts online March 1st. New student enrollment begins online March 15th. We will be having a night of worship here in the auditorium on Saturday, February 10th at 6 p.m. This time has been set aside to enjoy some great songs of worship and reflect on God's goodness together. Make plans now to be a part of Worship Night at FBC.
0: Community groups continue tonight at 6 p.m. If you are not yet connected with the Sunday p.m. community group, please visit fbcwixsonorg forward slash community groups for more information. Community groups meet in homes most Sunday evenings at 6 p.m.
2: In just a few minutes, we will be dismissing children four years through the third grade out the back of the auditorium to our junior church ministry. While there, they will enjoy a great time as they sing songs, play games, and hear a message from God's Word prepared just for them. Giving is one of the many ways we have to worship the Lord. If you'd like to give financially, you can utilize the Giving Box in the back of the auditorium Or you can give online at fbcwixom.org and click on the tab at the top of the page.
0: If this is your first time at FBC, we would love to connect with you. If you'd like more info about FBC, prayer, or learn how you can get involved, you can fill out a connections card online at fbcwixom.org forward slash connect. Also, make sure to stop by the Welcome Center for a special gift on your way out after the service. Once again, thank you for joining us for worship today. Now we invite you to worship the Lord through song as we prepare to hear from God's word this
3: morning.
4: Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us here today. We're so glad that you're here and we're so thankful that we're going to have an opportunity to worship God and study him this morning. Uh, real quickly, I do want to extend a word of congratulation to the Haddockses. They welcomed the newest member of our church, Harper Haddocks, last Sunday. So if you see them today, I'll give them some congratulations. We're so thankful for that. There is a slight change to community groups tonight. We are having community groups, but I don't know if you know this or not, but there is a Lions game this afternoon. It will likely extend around the time when community groups will normally start. So we're going to make a slight adjustment. We are not going to start with a Zoom meeting tonight in case the game is going well, which I sincerely hope it is, and you're still watching it, okay, please do gather as a community group, finish watching the game together, and then leaders jump into the questions. So we're still having community group, we still want to discuss the message, but at the same time we do want to allow everyone to, I hope, enjoy the end of the game. So still community group at six, please still come. If you're not connected to a community group, come see me or any of the leaders. We'll get you connected. We are having it tonight, but we're also going to watch the lions. Okay. Finally, you saw on the video, Jeremy talking about starting points. In fact, we're going to have a video in just a moment that talks about what starting points is and why it's so important. If you've never been to starting points before, it's so important. And this is for people who are new to our church, or if you've never actually been to starting points, it's for you as well. This is where you're really going to get to know what our church is all about, and it's where you're going to be able to start connecting with people at our church connecting at church with fellow christians is so important that's what starting points is about you get to connect with pastor brad but you also get to connect with all the people who are also new here at fbc and are starting their journey here with us so i really want to encourage you to go to starting points we have this video uh, to tell you about it this morning
5: Probably one of the things that I appreciated the most was doing it with my family, my wife and my daughter and my son-in-law. So we got to do it as a family together. I thought that was important. I thought it was uh, good for the family to engage in the discussion and uh, kind of learn and grow together. When the Starting Points class was offered,
3: we jumped right in. The class started in September and as soon as it started we realized that all of our questions that we have are answered. Questions from theology to doctrinal positions even to the history of the church which I found very interesting because it has a legacy of over 180 years which I found fascinating. I
6: really enjoyed the chance to uh, kind of set the tone before service and kind of get into the mindset, the right mindset. Um, I think through the week you sometimes prioritize other things and you know things that are important, you put those first and then on Sunday you go into service and it's kind of really quick and you leave and it's over where I think starting points and going through the exchange and all three of those classes was a good chance to kind of get in the right state of mind and understand what's important and um, go into service building on those lessons.
3: So not only with the starting points class, E3 has connected us through many different avenues of service and worship here. Our son is very involved in the youth group, Uh, we have joined a community group since last January and we have made a lot of friends that way.
5: We also got to develop and cultivate a relationship a little bit closer with Pastor Brad, Uh, love his teaching style, and the thing that I really like about the series is coming to a reality of, of how blessed we are as a church to have Pastor Brad and Holden, they're such wonderful teachers of the word. We were interested in starting to get more involved and volunteering more, and um, we also wanted to be baptized. So with our membership and figuring out what we needed to do and learning about everything that the church is about, it just really helped everything to solidify and fall
6: into place. Um, I think even just building a closer relationship with Pastor Brad, uh, and different families within the church. I think it kind of strengthened or reinforced that decision that we had, mm-hmm. that we kind of already went into that class knowing that that was the, the goal. But it made that whole process a lot easier and smoother. Get it done right away. Do it as soon as you can, because
5: it will be enlightening to you, to your family. Uh, you'll encourage other people to attend as well, and it's it, it would be a huge blessing to yourself as well as other church members to if you're, say, you've been here for years, you've been a member for years and you haven't done the E3 class, I also recommend it just because it's always nice to go back to the basics and um, hear everything from the beginning. Again, if you are already involved in discipleship um, and you're leading discipleship, I think it's always beneficial to go back to the beginning and do a good refresh just so that you can lead well and meet someone where they're at if. They're new to Christianity.
6: Um, So not only is it a good foundation for what's truly important that uh, service builds on, but also it's a way of um, taking some of the lessons we've learned in there and kind of taking it outside of the E3 class and outside of service and through our discipleship interactions and in the community groups, and it's kind of just all kind of ties together.
3: If you've been visiting First Baptist Church for a while and you're considering it as your church home, I would say give the Starting Points class a try. We did it, and the first time that we were there, all of our questions were answered. It's pretty easy after that, and once you start talking to people and getting to know people here in the halls or at choir or before the service, you're going to find there's a lot of really nice, wonderful people here, and it makes your experience a lot
7: easier. Whether you are new to First Baptist Church or you've been coming for a while and you'd like to know more about the church, the Starting Points class is for you. This class is designed to engage attenders in church life by answering five key questions about First Baptist. What is the story of First Baptist Church of Wixom? What does First Baptist teach? How is First Baptist structured? How is it funded? And how can I get more involved in FBC? If you've never attended the Starting Points class, you're encouraged to attend starting on January 28th. If you have any questions, please see me or Johnny Martin after the morning worship gathering today.
4: Awesome. So hopefully if you have not participated in starting points yet, I strongly urge you to consider it. It starts next week and uh, we'd love to see you there. Let's go ahead and open our service today in prayer. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to gather together today to worship you, to lift up your name. Lord, you're so good to us. You have given us so many blessings, many of which we do not regularly see, but you're there, Lord. And today, especially, we want to lift up thanks for Jesus, our Savior. You saved us, and we thank you. You loved us so much, and we thank you for that. Lord, help us to remember that today. Help us to make you the focus of what we do here together. We ask all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.
0: Let's stand together as we continue to worship. Great old hymn, focusing on a very simple yet profound truth: Jesus, He's the one who paid it all. Let's sing this out. I hear. taken part of an exchange class or you've done the exchange program, you've seen this truth mentioned several times throughout the, the study. And it's this idea, it's in the name, of a great exchange that's taking place, right? It's the fact that you and I have nothing to offer. We just have our old sinful rags, we're imperfect people, and we have nothing to offer a holy and a righteous God, and yet Christ became flesh. And dwelt among us. Lived a perfect and sinless life. One that you and I could never hope and dream to. For one purpose. So that there could be a great exchange. So that he could take on himself the sin penalty of you and I. The Bible tells us that is death and separation. And Christ took that on himself so that we could enjoy his amazing robes of righteousness. Enjoy his grace and mercy and forgiveness. And be able to be in the presence of God for all eternity. That's the great exchange that's mentioned in the in the curriculum. But more importantly, in scripture. The Bible tells us that we are all born sinners. And that we need a savior. And Jesus is that savior. And this song that we're about to sing is very familiar around here. We sing it all the time. But don't let the fact that we sing it all the time allow you to miss the point, the great truth. The fact that Jesus has given us his robes of righteousness and taken on himself our penalty because he loves us. Let's sing this out together.
1: His hopes for my oh wonderful exchange Loved in my sin I suffered beneath God's face Draped in his pride taken. God is strange from God, but fights a song Great truth. Great singing this morning. You can be seated.
4: Thank you guys, that was beautiful. Most of us are familiar with interviews, of which the word itself, there's really two types. Of course, there are work interviews, which most of us are familiar with. But today I want to talk to you about sports interviews, or I suppose you could call them news interviews in general. Now, if you're anything like me or especially my mom, you also think these particular type of interviews are possibly the most pointless interviews on the planet. Very little of value is exchanged. In fact, let me summarize probably every coach or quarterback interview that has ever occurred for you really quickly. Coach or quarterback, why are you doing well? Or why aren't you doing well? And they say some variation of this. Well, we're not doing what we practiced or we are doing what we practiced. And then, of course, the reporter always follows up with, how can you keep doing it? Or, how can you improve? And they always say something like, we have to play as a team. We have to do the fundamentals. We have to perform like we practiced Thanks, coach, and they run off. Nothing interesting was said. Nothing important was exchanged. Basically, all that was said was, well, we need to go actually play football to win this game, okay? That's what a sports interview is like. They're pointless. They don't really add anything to our knowledge. Now, it might be cool to see the quarterback or the coach or what have you, but they don't exchange anything meaningful. Now, I want to start with that illustration because today we are going to talk about the complete opposite of that. Today we're going to talk about possibly the most important and most valuable interview that was ever conducted ever. And it's the interview between Nicodemus and Jesus that is found in John chapter 3. Unlike a sports on-field interview, this interview is going to exchange the most important information that any of us have ever heard. It is the very core of of the gospel, and there is nothing more important than what Jesus has to say to Nicodemus. So that's where we're going today. That's what we want to talk about and understand this morning. Let's go ahead and open in prayer, and we'll dig into our passage. Lord, help us today as we consider your response to Nicodemus. Help us to understand it. Help us to understand what it means to be born again, to be born of the Spirit, and help us to understand that you loved us, and that you came and you died for us to save us from our sin. Lord, help us as we think about this today. Help us understand it for ourselves, understand how to share it with others. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this morning, I actually want to begin a little bit before John 3. This is actually one of the areas where I think the chapter divisions in our Bible uh, hold us back just a little bit, because really the last three verses of John chapter 2 are talking about the very events of John chapter 3. They're connected, they're related. We really don't have as good of a background on Nicodemus as we could have if we don't read the last three verses of John chapter 2. So that's where we're going to start this morning. This is what John chapter 2 verse 23 through John 3 verse 1 says. Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit or trust himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, let me give you a little bit of historical background here to get us to this point from pastor's message last week. Remember, pastor preached last week about Jesus's first miracle, which occurred at the city of Cana, a city in Galilee, just a few miles from Jesus's hometown, about five miles um, in Galilee. Now, it says after those events that Jesus moved to Capernaum, a city on the Sea of Galilee. And in fact, we're going to spend lots of time with Jesus In the vicinity of Capernaum because he spends a lot of his ministry there, but not in this particular passage. So put a pin in that if you're curious about Capernaum. Jesus is going back there and Pastor will talk about that certainly. But instead, Jesus today leaves Capernaum and he journeys to the south In fact, Jesus repeats this pattern of going south to Jerusalem multiple times during his ministry. The reason for this is because in order to be a correctly practicing Jew at this time, you had to celebrate three feasts in Jerusalem, Passover, Pentecost and the Feast of Booths. And many times Jesus following this pattern is going to be in Jerusalem and he's going to have some of his most important conversations and some of the most important events of his life are going to occur. In Jerusalem where he has gone for the purpose of the Passover, at least the purpose as far as following the law is concerned. Jesus obviously has other objectives to accomplish as well. But if you wonder why is Jesus uh, in Jerusalem every once in a while, this is why he's coming to celebrate the feast specifically today in John chapter two and three. He is here to celebrate the Passover. Now, while Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover, he is preaching and he is performing miracles according to chapter 2. This is why it's important to read those last three verses. And as a result of his preaching and of his miracles, the Bible says this, that they believed in his name. Now, at first blush, this comment that they believed in his name sounds good. If we just were to take that out and just consider that, that's good. Believing in Jesus's name is what you need to do. But Jesus himself has commentary on this. Jesus says literally that he did not commit himself or trust himself to them. In other words, Jesus does not take their belief as legitimate because the problem is that while they believed that Jesus was someone and he was doing something, they didn't actually understand who Jesus really was and what he was really there to do. At best, they thought Jesus was from God and had a good message. But the reality was that Jesus was God and he had the only message. Now, this is important. Because Nicodemus in chapter 3 really represents this viewpoint. The words that Nicodemus says and the ideas that Nicodemus brings are really the same questions that all of the people described in chapter 2 might have asked if they had an opportunity to have an interview or a conversation with Jesus. And so it's crucial that we understand this, that people were believing that Jesus was somebody, that he had something to say, but they weren't getting who he really was, nor were they getting what he was really saying. And so Nicodemus is going to come and he's going to talk to Jesus. This brings us to the actual passage proper. Starting in verse 2, we are going to read a section. We'll explain it and we'll work through the passage all the way to, of course, John three sixteen, uh, perhaps the most famous verse in the entire Bible. But Starting in verse 2 of chapter 3, let's go ahead and read the first exchange between Nicodemus and Jesus. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou dost except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this leads us to the first question. What Nicodemus is asking, not he doesn't say this explicitly, but based on Jesus's response, we can understand that Nicodemus is asking, what is the Messiah's message? Jesus, you seem to have answers from God. What is God telling us? This is what Nicodemus is asking. Now Nicodemus actually, I think, gets a pretty bad reputation from this passage that I actually don't think he deserves. Uh, Nicodemus here is not a person that we should look down on in this passage, but actually I think there's a lot of commendable character qualities about Nicodemus. He's not really a weak figure or a fearful figure, although perhaps coming at night might indicate that. But really, he's asking good questions. The problem is, is that he doesn't know the entire Truth. So let's not look down at Nicodemus in this passage, but let's rather learn from him. These are the types of questions that someone who is experiencing Jesus' message, who's hearing Jesus' message might have. That's who Nicodemus really represents here. He's not a fool, but he's someone who is seeking the truth. Despite the fact that he's seeking the truth, he definitely doesn't get it yet. For example, in verse 2, he says, We know you are from God. And no man can do the miracles that you do unless he is from God. So again, Nicodemus has part of the truth here. Jesus was from God, but he's missed the whole truth, which is that Jesus is God. Again, the same as the people. He's misunderstood exactly who Jesus is. He does believe that Jesus has something of value to say, but he hasn't quite gotten what it is. This is really a case of not really understanding who he's talking to. To give you an illustration, this is kind of like a mistaken identity. Uh, A friend and I went to a men's conference a few months back, and we had a really good time, and we got there, and we were eating food, which is, you know, the first priority at most men's conferences. We were having a good time, and we were joined by someone that neither one of us knew, and we started a conversation with him. Now, I knew something about this person that joined us that my friend did not. That was that he was our speaker for the weekend, because I had looked in the brochure but my friend didn't and my friend had a great conversation with this guy they learned a lot about each other but finally my friend explained why he had come to this this weekend and all the things that he was planning to get out of it and he asked the speaker what are you hoping to get out of this weekend why are you here and the speaker kind of chuckles and he kind of replies bashfully well I'm here to speak. I'm the speaker. That's who I am. And my friend you know, laughed, and again, their conversation went on from there. But this is kind of what Nicodemus is doing. He's saying, Jesus, you've got this very interesting message. Tell me more about it. Jesus says, no, 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 I am the message. I'm God. I'm here to save everyone from their sins. So he's misunderstood who Jesus is, and that's really the core of his problem. Now, Jesus, when he responds in verse three at first blush, kind of responds in a way that is confusing. Rather than reference anything that Nicodemus just said, Jesus says this, except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus here is cutting through the niceties. He's cutting through perhaps some other questions that Nicodemus may have had. And he's getting right to the real problem. What is the Messiah's message? Here's the Messiah's message that in order to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. Now, this little phrase, at least on its own, is perhaps confusing. You have to, for a moment, remember that you know how this passage ends. Nicodemus, of course, didn't know this yet. And being born again here is intentional wordplay by Jesus. He's using the fact that Greek actually has a word that could mean two things at once. It's that little word again. Here's its two meanings. One of the meanings is again, as in born twice. The other meaning is born from above. If you were listening to this for the first time, you might ask which of the two meanings is correct. I'm actually going to suggest to you that both meanings are correct. Not only do you have to be born again, but the second birth is, of course, from above. It's a spiritual birth, but Jesus is going to explain this a little ways on. Additionally, Jesus referenced the kingdom of God. Now, we don't have time today to really dig into what the kingdom of God is in its detail. The reason for that is because Jesus himself defines what the kingdom of God is in great detail in other places in the gospel. So we'll wait to really dig into this concept until Jesus does himself. But no, in general, when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, he is talking about a restored relationship between man and God. A perfect fellowship, eternal life that's what Jesus is talking about. When the Jewish population was talking about the kingdom of God, they were envisioning a real physical uh, kingdom, a restoration of the Davidic monarchy. So if you're Nicodemus, what you have just heard is that in order to enter the Davidic kingdom that the Messiah is going to bring about, you have to be born again or from above. Unsurprisingly, Nicodemus doesn't know what this means. What does it mean that you must be born again to enter into the kingdom? This is going to lead to Nicodemus's second question for clarification. The story continues in verse four. Nicodemus saith unto him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, I want to point out here that Nicodemus is not being dumb. He's not being intentionally dumb here. Uh, oftentimes, that's what we go with in this. You know, Nicodemus is suggesting somehow some kind of physical reentry and re-exit. Okay, that's ridiculous. Nicodemus knows this is ridiculous. In fact, Greek has this marker that basically tells us that, hey, I think this is impossible. Actually, what Nicodemus is saying in verse 4 is, okay, Jesus, I'm trying to understand what you said. Clearly, what you are not saying His man must be physically born again. That's impossible. So, Jesus, if that's impossible, what are you saying? That's what Nicodemus is asking. This is a legitimate question. He's trying to understand what Jesus is saying. He's trying to ask Jesus, what's the method? How do I actually become born again? How does this work? Now, the reason this would have been really important to Nicodemus is because Nicodemus, as we'll talk about in a moment, is a Pharisee. He is a teacher of the law. The exact mechanics of the law are really important to him. In fact, the Pharisees of all of the religious leaders of Israel are the most dedicated to following the Old Testament practices. And so for the Pharisees especially... The physical birth into the ethnic community of Judaism was really important. Jesus has almost immediately challenged one of Nicodemus' most closely held beliefs. He believed that being born as a Jew was the most essential part of being part of the kingdom of God. Jesus says it's not your physical birth that matters, but rather your spiritual birth that matters when it comes to being part of the kingdom of God. Of God. The law is not what's going to save you, as it turns out, but faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus redefines here what actually is required to be part of the kingdom of God. Because it turns out that devotion to the law can't save anyone, because it turns out that following the law perfectly is impossible for everyone except one person. Jesus Christ. The Pharisees couldn't do it. We certainly can't follow the law perfectly. We can't save ourselves with the law or come anywhere even close. But Jesus can. And Jesus, by doing so, is going to provide a different way, the only way into the kingdom of God, and that's to be born of the Spirit. Now, Jesus does say something unusual here. He says not only Do you need to be born of water, but you must be born of the Spirit? We'll talk about being born of the Spirit second. That's actually the easier part to understand here. There's actually some questions about what Jesus means by being born of water here. I'll give you a few ideas, but it's not as important as the second part. Some people suggest to be born of water means you must be physically born. This is, of course, logically true. In order to be saved, you have to be born. That makes sense. Some people suggest that this means that you must repent, referencing the baptism of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, when he baptized, was not baptizing for the same reason we do. We are baptized to symbolize Jesus dying for our sins, rising again. That's why we are baptized. We're publicly proclaiming and associating ourselves with Jesus. Since Jesus hadn't died yet, the baptism of John did not relate to that. Instead, it actually represented a washing of saying, I have sinned, I no longer want to sin, I want to commit to following in the right way. Perhaps that's what the baptism of water means. We might be seeing a early form of Romans 10.9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth... The Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Maybe this is what Jesus is referring to. The final possibility is that born of water and born of spirit are actually two different ways to say the same thing. And in fact, in scripture, water is a very common illustration of what the spirit is like. But regardless, what really matters, what Jesus is really driving here is this birth By the spirit or being born of the spirit. That's what really matters here. And this is what we want to understand. Jesus is denying that physical birth has anything to do with your ability to enter the kingdom of God. But your spiritual birth has everything to do with your entrance into the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus continues, and we won't read it for sake of time, and he explains to Nicodemus that, look, Nicodemus, there's things like the wind that are invisible and yet still have power and still act. The spiritual world is the same way, and what you must have to be saved is a spiritual renewal. That's what the Messiah's method is. How is he going to bring about people into the kingdom of God? He's going to do so by having them be born again again. By the spirit, being born again requires a spiritual change. However, Nicodemus doesn't know what this means. And again, if we assume or we forget that we know the rest of the passage, we might be a little lost here. Two, okay, Jesus, so we must be born again. We must be born of the Spirit, but how do we do this? What does this mean, Jesus? How can we, in fact, be a part of the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus is going to continue. Nicodemus asks his third and final question, although it's not the final, really, section of the passage. This is what Nicodemus says in verse 9. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, how can these things be? Jesus What do you mean? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel or a teacher of Israel and knowest not these things? Continuing in verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up that or whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now Nicodemus here is just admitting Jesus. I don't understand. I need clarification. What do you mean? Again, Nicodemus here at least is being honest. He's not saying that he understands and he doesn't. He's not suggesting his own interpretation here. He's saying, Jesus, I don't get it. Please explain it to me. Now, Jesus does gently chase Nicodemus here. He actually says, are you not the teacher? That's the most literal translation here. This implies, by the way, that Nicodemus was not just a Pharisee, but he was actually a renowned um, teaching Pharisee, perhaps a public lecturer on the bible and yet jesus says how can you not understand this nicodemus it's not just me that's saying these things but even the old testament points to this if you're curious what jesus is talking about he's talking about ezekiel 36 verses 25 through 28 just briefly the opening of this passage that jesus is referencing says this then i will sprinkle clean water upon you and ye shall be clean talking about clearing away sin and a spiritual new life so jesus is saying look nicodemus i'm talking about what the old testament said i'm talking about the things that i have seen in heaven because people from earth can't understand these things it requires someone who's seen god that's me But let me illustrate it for you, Nicodemus. If you don't understand how any of this works, let me give you a historical illustration that I know you're familiar with. Because, of course, the Pharisees are really dedicated to the law, so they would have known this story. Jesus turned their attention to a story from Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. But you're probably familiar with this. This is the famous story where the Jews rebel against God. Okay, that summarizes most of the first five books, okay? But specifically, in this particular case, God sends a judgment upon them. Specifically, in Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9, he sends snakes who have a completely deadly bite. If you are bitten by one of these snakes, there is no recovery. You are doomed and assured of death. But... God provides, based on Moses' begging for the Israelites, a solution. The solution is a brass or a bronze serpent that Moses lifts up in the middle of the camp. And if you look towards it, which, by the way, there's some really awesome imagery here. The glory of God, the pillar of smoke or flame is sitting right above this point because it's at the center of the camp. If you look towards the serpent, if you look towards God, you... Will be saved from the bite of these snakes. You will have salvation. Now, Jesus tells this story because he wants us to draw parallels between the current reality and what was happening in this story. Here's the current reality that all humans, including Nicodemus and including all of us, have sinned, and sin results in a guaranteed death, just like the bite of these serpents. The Israelites rebelled against God. So have all of us. Every one of us is a rebel against God. That is our initial state. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But just like in this story, God, for Nicodemus, will provide for us, has provided a solution by lifting up his son to die for our sins. Jesus was God himself. But God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. And now by looking to Jesus, believing he was who he says he was, by turning from our sins and following Jesus, we can be saved. Again, this is Romans 10, 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. In other words, Jesus is saying this, that you, Nicodemus, can't do anything to save yourself. You can't follow the law you're like the Israelites, rebelled against God, and destruction is your future. But by believing in me, Nicodemus, the Son of God, God himself, you can be saved. That's it. Look at me. Look at me and believe, and you will be saved from your sins. Try to work it out yourself, and you will die, Nicodemus. That's the difference between what you have been doing and being born again. That brings us, finally, to the last section. By the way, what did the Messiah mean? Being born again saves you from death and enables a relationship with God, but it brings us to the final thing. It's not a question that Nicodemus asks. In fact, most likely, this last section is kind of separate, as in Jesus is speaking this directly to Nicodemus or perhaps to his followers. This is Jesus speaking truth, not necessarily answering a question. But we could ask a question. Why did the Messiah come? What is the purpose of the Messiah coming? Why did it have to be this way? Well, of course, John three sixteen, which we all know, I'm sure, answers this. But this is what it says. Don't let the fact that we're so familiar with this let us miss the crucial core gospel truth that this verse shares. It says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have ever lasting life in this jesus is describing the entire purpose of the bible and the mechanics of how the gospel works and the outcome of the gospel as well it's answering the why the how and the what questions that all of us could have god so loved the world he loved the world so much more than any person has ever loved his love is universal it's for all of us his love is why he acts. And by the way, he is the one who's acting. Nothing we did prompted him to act. His love prompted him to act. And so he sent his son. Sending his son is the ultimate act of love. There can be no greater sacrifice than sending his own son and then actually dying himself for us. This is what God Did not only does it show God's commitment, but actually, if we were to expand upon this and we don't have time, it's the only possible way this could work. It required God, 100% God, and 100% man in Jesus, working in concert to have our salvation. There was no other way this was possible. So, not only did God do it because He loved us, He was the only one who could make it possible, Jesus Christ. And what? By doing this, by dying for us, He has made it possible for us not to perish, but have everlasting life, eternally restored relationship with God. Now, the next few verses actually describe the reality that John 3.16 is dealing with. So we have some descriptive verses. One of the questions, perhaps, that Nicodemus might have had if he was still asking questions here is, wait a second, Lord, is everyone already condemned? Is the Messiah coming to condemn the world or are they already condemned? The answer in verse 17 through 19 is that the world is already condemned. The Jews apparently thought the Messiah would come and he would judge everyone. He'd look at their adherence to the law and their desire to do good and he would make a decision. No, the unfortunate reality is that every single person who ever lived has rebelled against God, with, of course, the exception of Jesus and as a result, we're already condemned. There's no future test. We've already all failed. The answer for all of us, the result we deserve is death. So Jesus didn't come to condemn anybody. We already condemned ourselves. We already accomplished that. Our future, our fate is death. What Jesus has done is he's come to shine a light that says you can be saved where you currently are. You're in darkness and you're headed towards death. But I'm offering you, if you look towards me again, just like the illustration from the old Testament, if you look towards me, if you believe in me, then you can be saved From what you already deserve. Unfortunately verses 20 and 21 tell us a sad reality. That was true of Nicodemus' generation. And it's true of our generation as well. Because it's true of all humans. And that is even though Jesus is shining the light. It turns out that most people, in fact, we as well, prefer darkness over light. It's only through Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the love of God pouring out that we ever have a chance. Again, tying back to God's love in John 3.16. So why did the Messiah come when he did? Because God loved us and he wants to save us from our sins. So let's dig into application. What do we do with this? On one hand, you might say it doesn't feel like there's a lot of application to this text if... I'm already saved. Of course, if you're not saved, this is the passage that you need to study, that you need to contemplate. God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die for you. Jesus rose from the dead to prove he was, in fact, God himself and a sinless man. If you put your faith and trust in him, he will save you. That's an awesome application. But maybe you're sitting here and saying, "Okay, I believe I am saved What does this passage have to do with me? Well, can I encourage you that this passage, John 3.16, even though it's so well-known, is well-known for a reason because it's the core of the gospel. We have to understand John 3.16. We have to understand why it is that Jesus came, what it is that Jesus did, and why putting faith and trust in him is so crucially important. If you are saved this morning, I encourage you to contemplate this passage and to share it. It's an application that perhaps is true of all passages of Scripture that talk about salvation, but none more so than this. John 3.16 is the core idea. If there's nothing else that you know about the gospel, John 3.16 is the thing to know. So let me encourage you, share John 3.16 with the people in your life, the people that you're developing redemptive relationships with. Share these truths this week about John 3.16. Let me illustrate it to conclude with a historical example, because you know I can't get out of here without a historical example. John 3.16 is the core idea. It's the most important thing to understand, and if we miss it, we've missed the point. Let me give you a famous example of someone who missed the point. It actually occurred at a battle that you're probably familiar with. That is the Battle of Gettysburg. This is the most famous battle of the Civil War. Many people consider it the most important battle of the war, but ironically... It shouldn't have been. In fact, the Battle of Gettysburg probably should have been a minor skirmish that wouldn't be known by anybody but really, really intense Civil War nerds. So I'd still probably know about it. But the reality is that most of us shouldn't know about this battle, except someone lost focus on what the core idea was. You see, the Confederacy could never conquer North. This was never a possibility. No Confederate general or Confederate politician ever considered conquering the North and capturing the North a possibility. It was completely unfeasible, could not be done. The core idea of the Gettysburg campaign was not to capture anything. It was to steal resources, to cause panic. And to win the war the only way the Confederacy could, by forcing the Union or by scaring the Union into giving up. That's what the Confederacy needed to accomplish. It needed to demoralize the North and get them to give up. It couldn't capture the North. Everyone knew that. In fact, General James Longstreet, who's on the bottom of the slide, he actually understood this. After the first day of fighting at Gettysburg, he told General Lee on the top, General Lee, we've accomplished our goal. We have demoralized the North. We've won a skirmish. We've sent the North packing a few miles down to Cemetery Ridge. Let's get out of here. We've accomplished our core goal. We've done what we needed to do. This was another embarrassment for the North. Let's retreat to the South with our army intact. But General Lee thought he could win the battle. He forgot for a moment what the point of the entire campaign was. He saw an opportunity to defeat a Union army, and so he attempted to take that opportunity. And in doing so, he Failed. In fact, by the third day of Gettysburg, one of the most infamous moments of the Civil War that resulted in 9,000 dead Confederates in Pickett's charge, occurred, and General Lee lost the battle. Any good that would have been accomplished for the Confederacy by escaping on day one completely wiped away because General Lee forgot why he was there. He was there to sow discouragement in the North. He wasn't there to fight a battle. And by fighting a major battle and losing, he actually damaged. The confederacy and really many consider this the beginning of the end the confederacy slumped until it was finally defeated now let me parallel this to what Nicodemus and Jesus were talking about the Jewish religious community that Nicodemus represents had missed the core point. They were following the rules, they were doing the law, but they had missed the point, which was a restored relationship with God. That's the entire purpose of the law. It was supposed to bring Israel into fellowship with God. The reality was, though, that it couldn't do that. And a careful study of the Old Testament makes this clear. There always had to be a solution, and that solution was the Messiah. And now the Messiah was there and he was shining the light. And he was saying this, the core idea, what you must do is repent, believe, and obey what I'm saying. And instead of holding on to this core idea, the Jews continued to follow the law. They continued to follow the complex things that they thought were important, but they missed what actually mattered. And what actually mattered was this, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to study this passage today. Help us to remember this is the core of the gospel. This is why you came. This is why we're here. This is why we can have a restored relationship with you. Lord, help us to share this. Help us to live this. Help us to understand this. We ask all this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.
0: Let's stand and sing out. As we close today, for the great truth, as we were reminded this morning, is that we have hope, and it's in the name of Jesus.
1: There is a song, I know it well. So soul will press my confidence in you alone. Oh, past- Amém.
7: The most important thing our church can communicate with you is the gospel message. The word gospel means good news. The trouble with most good news is that it isn't really good until you see it relative to bad news. The discovery of a new cure isn't all that helpful unless you or a loved one has the disease that it cures. In the same way, the good news of Jesus is good when it is understood in relation to the bad news of our own sin. We are all sinners. That's the disease we are all born with. And Jesus is the cure. The good news that everyone can live forever with God in heaven, not because of anything we can do, but because of what Jesus did in our place. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated his love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The truth that everyone, everywhere, at all times in history needs to hear is that salvation is only possible by putting our faith in Jesus Christ alone. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Would you put your faith in Jesus Christ today? Would you be willing to pray something like this and mean what you pray from your heart? Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I know I can do nothing to earn forgiveness and make myself right with you. Instead of dying for my own sins, I want to trust Christ and his death on the cross as payment for my sins. I want to repent from doing things my way and make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. The Bible tells us that those that repent from their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in this way shall be saved. Would you believe on him today? And if you did trust Christ today, if you did pray a prayer like the one suggested a moment ago and you really meant it, would you let us know? We want to help you grow in your understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe you have more questions about putting your faith in Christ and we have great resources to help you with that. The Exchange Bible Study is a four-week study on the character of God that will answer most of your questions about the gospel. We have men and women ready and waiting to go through that with you, in person or virtually, depending on your situation. Maybe you put your faith in Christ today, or, or maybe you did years ago, but you feel like you've not grown in your faith. We want to help you with that as well. We have literally hundreds of helpful resources and dozens of believers ready to walk with you through them. Let us know how we can best encourage your journey of faith in Christ using one of the contact methods listed below. Jesus Christ loves you and wants to spend eternity with you. May God bless you as you seek to live your life for His honor and for His glory.